snow. We too have our thaws. They come to our January moods when our ice cracks and our sluices break loose. Thought that was frozen up under stern experience gushes forth in feeling and expression. Henry David Thoreau There are two types of people in the world. Those who love snow and those who do not. There is no such thing as a child who does not like snow. A few people have valid objections to snow, those with broken hips and confounded commuters, for example. But anyone else whose heart does not leap at the first falling snowflakes is a miserable curmudgeon. There, I've said it. (laughs) I get as excited by snow today as I did back on those glorious, rare occasions at school when someone in the classroom yelled, It's snowing! and cheery pandemonium broke out. The south of England being a mild sort of place, the best I hope for each year is a covering of a few inches, a couple of sledging outings, and a day or two of jolly disruption. Today, after weeks of rain, I was excited to get out into the snow that had fallen overnight, not least of all because I had also noticed the dawn arriving a little earlier. It was nice to get away from the daily grind of book writing in my shed. Snow makes everything feel more adventurous, though the sprinkling here couldn't compare to the majesty of hauling a sledge across Greenland's vast silence, relishing being self-contained with a couple of friends and very far from civilization. But I was still thrilled. As the days lengthen, the cold strengthens, goes the proverb, with a nod to scientific veracity. Earth receives the least sunlight at the winter solstice, yet the coldest temperatures come later, a seasonal lag caused by more solar energy leaving the atmosphere than arriving. Today, the snow muffled the world and quietened everything. I could hear a buzzard and the cawing of rooks, but the usual motorways and sirens sounded softer. I paused in a field to admire a newly laid hedge filled with a healthy variety of species, including hawthorn, blackthorn, hazel and maple. We destroy thousands of miles of hedgerows each year, so this conservation work was gratifying to see. Hedges play an important role, not only for aesthetics and tradition, but also for shelter, food and as movement corridors for wildlife, including insects that pollinate crops and birds that eat pests on those crops. The hedgerows, trunks and large branches had been sliced partway through, then bent over and woven through each other. It looks severe, but over time the hedge grows back into an impregnable barrier. Laying hedges is a country craft that has been practised for hundreds of years, as I learnt from the Niche National Hedge Laying Society website. Hooper's rule can tell you approximately how old a hedge is. Its age in years equals the number of woody plant species in a 30-yard section multiplied by 110. Hack too much off a hedge and it degrades, becoming hollow at the bottom and useless for sheltering wildlife. Yet, if hedges are ignored, they grow too tall and collapse. Hedge laying preserves the past and protects the future, society therefore declares proudly. 
As I followed the hedge, I saw the tracks of a pickup truck in the snowy fields, the swish of a sledge, the gait of a runner, the hop of a rabbit, the strut of a pheasant, and the heroic efforts of a mole hauling its way through the cold soil beneath us and excavating an impressive row of fresh molehills, black against the white field. Moles are the only mammal to live solely underground. They survive in that low oxygen environment by having high numbers of red blood cells and they certainly cope with the darkness better than I do in these long winter months. They are light sensitive and not blind, but they do also have sensory hairs over their body to help navigate in the dark. Their ears are inside their bodies, behind their shoulders, and their snout acts like a sound tube. They are tough little beasts. Despite being less than 15 centimetres long and weighing under 150 grams, they can still dig 200 metres of tunnel a day, shifting 540 times their own body weight of soil. That's like me shunting 11 hippos around. Moles work for four hours, then rest for four hours in a tough underground shift system that continues all day, every day eclipsing my mere 45 days and nights of shift work when rowing the Atlantic Ocean. All this exertion means that moles need to eat half their body weight a day. For me, that would equal 350 quarter pounders, or half a kangaroo. <laughs> For a mole, it means around 20 worms. If they struggle to find enough in their existing tunnel network, they dig new runs, which means new molehills and potential conflict with farmers. Some farmers try to get rid of them because they believe moles pollute silage, wreck pastures and encourage weed growth. Mole catchers still exist, but back in their heyday, every parish employed one. They earned more than surgeons. Plus, they also sold the silky pelts to be tailored into waistcoats. Secret mole-controlling techniques were carefully handed down through families over the generations. The bitterly cold winter, known as the Little Ice Age in 1566, led to mole control becoming national policy in an attempt to protect food supplies. Queen Elizabeth I passed an Act for the Preservation of Grain, which remained law for 300 years. It included bounties for the destruction of vermin that included everything from hedgehogs to kingfishers and, most certainly, moles. I was walking through the snow towards the northern edge of the day's grid square. Bare branches stood out on a lone tree like the veins and vessels of a heart, silhouetted against the low sunlight and framed by a dark and heavy snow front moving my way. I enjoy watching weather approach like this. The sky was hazy, as though draped in gauze, and all that falling snow was soon going to reach me. I hoped for those jumbo snowflakes that fill the sky and cover the land with magical six-pointed stars. The uniqueness of each snowflake is one of the best-known scientific facts and the astronomer and mathematician Johannes Kepler was perhaps the first to pay inquisitive attention to this natural phenomenon. In 1611, he made a booklet as a Christmas gift for a friend, titled The Six-Cornered Snowflake, Pondering Explanations for Their Shapes. 
It may have been an idle diversion from his revolutionary study of the planets, which changed our understanding of the cosmos, and from the trauma of his mother being accused of witchcraft and spending more than a year chained in a prison cell. As the weather front reached me and it began to snow, the fields were soon covered in what looked like beanbag pellets. From this mystery, I learnt a new word. These pellets were graupel, formed in a process called rhyming, when supercooled drops of water, meaning water that remains liquid at temperatures below zero, freeze around existing snow crystals in the sky. I walked on, wondering whether I might spot all eight official categories of snow. Column crystals, plain crystals, a combination of column and plain crystals, aggregation of snow crystals, rhymed snow crystals, germs of ice crystals, irregular snow particles, and other solid precipitation. Trudging through the white world felt like taking a trip back to slower, quieter times. I saw a church tower in the distance as rooks swirled, black against the white sky. Partridges flew by in a whir of short, fast wing beats. No pear trees in sight. A woodcock burst from cover. There was less to see in this blanketed grid square, but there were abundant things to feel. I gave thanks for my modern winter clothing, especially the homemade scarf that I was very proud to have knitted myself and savoured my flask of soup, particularly as today I had some of my home-baked bread to accompany it. Natufian hunter-gatherers began making bread from wild wheat, barley and plant roots 14,000 years ago in Jordan. Bread spread quickly across the world once wheat was cultivated in the Fertile Crescent, and it played a significant role in the establishment of settled towns in preference to nomadic lifestyles. The Dipnosophistae, a 3rd century book about a series of Roman banquets, contains recipes for griddle cakes, honey and oil bread, mushroom-shaped loaves covered in poppy seeds, and the military speciality of rolls baked on a spit that continues down the ages to the charred but enjoyable campfire bannocks made by Cub Scouts today. My bread was so easy to make, cost only pennies, yet tasted so blooming delicious that I scoffed almost half of it, sitting on a log among a billion falling flakes of snow and catching snowflakes on my tongue like a kid who has never fallen out of love with snow. <laughs>